Welcome back to The Shelf Oddities. My name is Serafina. And the oddity I'm feeling like today is definitely the dried bouquet from your creepy estranged aunt's funeral that you don't really use, but you don't want to throw it out just in case she haunts you. <laughs> I'm Eerie, and the oddity that I'm feeling today is a very well-used advertisement fan that has dinner with the boys on one side and an advertisement for ice cream on the other. Dinner and dessert. Dinner that and is, dessert. That would definitely be well used in this house, for sure. Goodness. Well, how have you been, Ari? Oh, you know, living the dream. Living the dream. Living odd. Staying odd, at least. Always. So, this episode's going to be a little different, because... Uh, I was put into a, a scenario that I was incredibly moved by and haven't had the chance to talk to you about yet, and I thought it would be fun to share it here um, on a life episode, because what is not the great, greatest part of life other than community? And I had told you this story about this woman uh, who's a moderator in one of my flower farming groups who had my favorite Dahlia tuber up for trade back in March and she reached out to me last week and asked if I still had space for it in my garden and of course I told her yes because it's my favorite and all of that good stuff but I told her I didn't have anything to trade anymore but I would buy it off of her and she was like no I'll just send it to you just pay me postage right you remember that I'm telling you that I do remember so we had a long conversation and she So this woman is a moderator uh, in a flower farming group that I'm in. She's a flower farmer herself and grows a lot of dahlias, which are one of my favorite flowers. And dahlias grow from tubers like a potato. Um, They're actually kind of related in that sense. And she had a tuber of my favorite dahlia. And we had this long conversation about everything that had happened uh, over the season and what was going to happen in the next season and she'd asked me like what my favorite dahlias were to grow and all this stuff so she happened to have um, an extra dahlia for something uh, for she happened to have an extra dahlia tuber for a dahlia called brown sugar which is a beautiful dahlia that I need for my friend's wedding that I'm growing flowers for and I had had some run-ins with some uh other vendors not coming through with that so it just really touched me that she was like I'm just gonna go ahead and send this to you um and it's an expensive tuber I mean you're looking at like a $12 plant that she was just sending me for postage and I was having a really crappy day that day and her message meant so much to me and I was so touched by it and she then sends me the tracking code of this package two days later and I got it on Saturday And I picked up that box and I knew there was way more than what she had told me she was going to send me in here. And I was like, what in the world? What is this? And, um, the world. So I opened it and I'm telling you, I have not felt like a kid on Christmas more than I have. I mean, since probably I was a kid on Christmas, Mm -hmm. like very young. Um, so she had told me she was going to send me two tubers and maybe a couple of others that she thought I would like. Um, so I go through this package and she sent me 25 tubers. Oh, wow. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot. I mean, I purchased this year alone, me going to different vendors, 23. Mm. So she doubled just what I had purchased this year for free. 
She did not ask me for any money. She did not ask me to pay her postage. She didn't mm-hmm. ask anything. She just was like, enjoy. Because I start to go through it. She had ended up sending me 25 tubers. So I personally ordered 23 for this year. And she had doubled what I had planned, which I'm on a small homestead already. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of space for it. I'm going to find space. Sure. But she sent me 25, and I had only expected her to send me two. That's so awesome. And she sent these to me for free. I mean, she I literally was, like, trying to pay her for postage. You know, I'm trying to do all mm-hmm. this. And she's like, no, enjoy. And I haven't talked to her fully yet, like, because she told me that she was going to send me tracking and then she'd send me her Venmo details Mm -hmm. and she sent me tracking and then I was like cool let me you know have the Venmo blah 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 nothing and the reason I'm bringing it up to you and and the reason that I think it fits so well within our life and our and and death scenarios here and what we like to talk about is there's this thing in gardening that is mostly adapted by Christians and I think that that's not uh, necessarily fair because gardening's for everybody, and Christians use it as the like they call it like the prom like the the seed of promise the promise of seeds, mm-hmm. but really it's the promise of multiplication, which is, I received this gift from this woman, who plants five thousand dahlias every year. Mm-hmm. 25 dahlias tubers to her is nothing. These were things that she had left over that she had already planted in the year. Um, And she wanted to gift that to somebody. And I just happened to be the very lucky recipient of that. But the cool thing about gardening is, is say, it's just math. It's math at its truest form, which is I plant six bean plants, right? Every single bean plant puts off let's go very basic numbers 10 beans right we're looking at 60 beans every single bean has five bean seeds in it right now we're getting to like huge numbers you started with six seeds that if you were to let all of those beans dry you're now having hundreds of seeds in your hand to then gift to other people so it went from you having six seeds to having 600 to give away, you know, like whatever the math is. I didn't do the math because it was just too quick and I have ADHD and my brain's already on my next (laughs) sentence. But you have, I mean, you you go from six to a hundred seeds, bare minimum, right? That you then can give out. So say you give six seeds to your closest neighbor. The next year, they all each have that same amount you then had. And then the next year and the next year. So Dahlia tubers, you start with one tuber. At the end of the year, you end up with four, five, six, seven, eight, depending on how much it puts off. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting with 25 tubers this year. And next year, if every single one of those tubers gives me four, that's 100 tubers. Right. Every single tuber gives me five, six, seven, who knows? Mm -hmm. Even if I have some failures in there, the other ones are going to come through so quickly. And it's such a cool thing about gardening is that over time and over generations it's almost a cooler investment than money in my opinion i mean don't get me wrong capitalist society you gotta have money but having this one tuber that she gifted me right this totally tangerine which is my favorite that gives me six tubers for next year i then plant every single one of those tubers they all give me six tubers there 
And then I can either gift them away and other people then start growing them and then they can gift them and they can gift them. We're talking in 10 years, hundreds of tubers from this one sweet gift. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that is something that is so cool when we talk about our community and how we like our we like to build our community and we like to lift up our community and, and all of this. It's so cool to me how this basic stranger doing one act of kindness made me feel more connected to my community than I felt in since before COVID. Right. You know, just this one act of kindness and I had said to her how, when I was so grateful, I was like, I, I can only hope in the future that I can repay your kindness, even if it's not to you, but to somebody else. And she was like, and that's what we love about the gardening mindset. You know, that's what that's what you love about that is when you're in an abundance of something and you share that abundance, how wonderful life can be, mm -hmm. you know. But it's also wild to think she sent me some tubers, some dahlias that you can't get anymore. Some like rare breeds that you can't find online. You can find pictures of them, you know, you can find note of them, but like you can't go to your, you know, regular Dahlia store. And not that that's a thing. There's not like 1 800 Dahlias, but you can't go to your regular old flower store. Yeah, flower store, Dahlia importer, Dahlia breeder. You can't find these things. So, somebody who bred this Dahlia a hundred years ago, who does no longer exist, these tubers had exchanged hands so many times to end up in this woman's flower farm to then end up in my hands and in my garden. And there's two ways that that then goes to what I want to actually talk about with you today, that... It fits in two ways and why I wanted to, to share with you because the first way it fits in is just that the generations of cultivating anything, how it changes over time. And that is one of my true, um, hyper, I don't know if it's a hyper fixation, if it's just how you live your life in, in a generational way, but it also is where the story starts on how I hyper fixated on cheese making this week. Um, because my uh, co-worker at the flower farm was helping me plant dahlias and that's how we got into this conversation that led me down a very, very deep rabbit hole, um, which is really fun. It's a, a, a fun social study is what I call it and uh, I hope that you enjoy it with me. Always, especially if it's cheese related. I mean, anything cheese related, right? Yep. What we do for cheese. Do you have a favorite cheese? Oh gosh. Do you that have a, a that is a hard question to ask. Do you have like a cheese that you always need to ha in, to be in your fridge? Oh, always in my fridge as like a staple to mix with other foods. I would like a good sharp cheddar. A sharp cheddar? Uh, I I like my my cheese to punch me in the teeth a little bit, which is also <laughs> why I like goat cheese so much. I feel you on goat that. Cheese. I do love good Fiend. goat cheese. So, the weird thing about this hyperfixation is it's also multiple hyperfixations all coming together at once. Uh, cheese making has been a hyperfixation of my past that has come to life now, uh, which is weird. It's trying to do something because you have the knowledge of a process that you hyperfixated about last fall is odd. 
because the thrill is over, so there's, like, no dopamine for those of us with ADHD, but you have to do it because you're in the right season for it. That's been a long stream of consciousness hyperfixation that I've had for a while now. The hobbies that I tend to fixate on are in the wrong season because I live my life around each season and what the daily weather's like. So there is a lot of time where I'm hyper fixated on a favorite type of flower or a product I want to put away for the winter, but I find that in November and the ground's frozen and I can't grow anything. But the cool thing is, is that when you hyper fixate on something that will help you in the future, when it becomes time to do those things, I know how to take care of it and I know how to do it. I just have to convince myself to do it, right? Because when it becomes a flower, all I have to do is plant it right and take care of it. And I don't have to look up any of those things because I already know how to do it. And then I get these beautiful blooms, which is wonderful. But, you know, also it is hard because trying to convince yourself to hyperfixate on something you're not hyperfixated on anymore, it's kind of a bear. So with all of that context in mind... <laughs> Let's get into where we go with cheese making. Uh, So for those who don't know how food production works, totally fine. I did it until five years ago. Some people found out with COVID, a lot of people got into the lifestyle because they saw empty shelves for the first time in their life and was scared by it as is understandable. But as someone who was into all of this stuff pre-COVID, I have the benefit of doing things not in fear, but out of want and respect and wanting to thrive. An interest, right? An interest for sure. So with all of this context, grass goes bananas in the spring. If you notice everything is like brown and dead and then you walk outside one day and it's all green and beautiful because the earth has woken up. My season to your season. My, yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> Literally. Well, my season to my favorite season because right. also winter, mm, I love a good fireplace. Agreed. Um, so grass going bananas means ruminants, i.e. goats, deer, cows, cattle, uh, produce more nutrient-rich milk, better cream, the best kind of cheese. So it's, uh, you know, springtime and the cheddar's easy. You know, very <laughs> much that. So I've been making some traditional farmhouse cheddar. That's what I've been making with this spring. And it's been so interesting to make the cheese. I was hyper fixated on it for about a month back in, I think November. I think it was November. I I found a YouTube video that was like an hour long and I watched all of it and like absorbed all the knowledge. Yep, like a sponge. Yes, like a sponge, exactly. Um, But it's interesting to have it happen right in front of you when you've been thinking about it for so long. So after you make the cheese and you do all these things, you have to like cut up the curds in the pot and make them like a half an inch thick. And it makes this like wonderful chessboard looking thing. And it's so satisfying. It was so satisfying, like the same way that I imagined it. And it made going through making cheese so much more fun because I really thought that it would be a slog because I wasn't hyper fixated on it anymore, right? And um, now I have cheese to eat on my shelf in six months, which is wonderful. It's actually right up there on that shelf. 
the red thing. Ugh. Yeah, so well, I'm going to put away more, which is exciting because it actually went really well. Because you know how it is when you hyperfixate on something and then it doesn't go well. Uh, and you're yeah. like, brain deletes info, goodbye. Yep. Had enough. Gotta be good the first time. Got, and it went really well. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And we'll continue to put up more. So hopefully come winter time, and we're, when we're, ni- we're nice and cozy, we'll be having beautiful charcuterie boards. So forgive me for sounding ignorant. Yeah. I'm not sure. Did you buy the milk and then yes. did the... Okay. Sorry if I sped past oh, that. Oh, no, that's okay. I yes, just, we so, have milk that turned into cheese, but I don't know where the milk came from. I understand. Sorry. Let me... The uh, so milk. <laughs> Got milk. So I actually am a part of a private buyer's club because raw milk is not legal to buy in certain states, oh. including Ohio. Um, there's reasons for that. Laws, all that good stuff. There was... Uh, like kids getting sick and that you know they had to regulate all that people got greedy and decided not to take care of their cows you know how that always goes um so i ended up being a part of a private buyers club which is uh the amish they grouped up with a friend who can use the internet and that's how i found them and so i buy milk from them that is completely raw it comes with the cream in line and everything so i typically will purchase a, like a couple half gallons from them and then I'll make cheese in the past it had always been a soft cheese something that I can just make in a, in a you know 15 minutes and have with dinner this has been the first time I've ever used um, cheese or I've ever used milk to make cheese that will age for a while is it not is it called hard cheese it is hard cheese okay. yes it is called hard cheese which I don't love that but <laughs> what can you do so what all this then leads to is me diving into the history of cheese making and also something a little more interesting, maybe darker, maybe not. It's just a social study, if you will, which was my favorite class up until what then became like history and all these other things. But when it was just social studies, it was the bomb. Wait, what color was your social studies for? Purple. Purple. Yeah. yeah that's a good choice. Um, and history is dope, and I get sucked into generational things so quickly. I mean, you can tell with the dolly is immediately I went to, like, all these hands at it. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I go to that so fast because it's just, it's like looking at, like, the the multiverse, you know, like, to see, like, so many different lives. And uh, this sucked me in pretty good here, what making cheese. the uh, expanded farmer universe? Yes, exactly, like yeah. American Homesteader universe, something along those lines. Um, so my good friend and I, my, we were in the garden planting dahlias and me as the ADHD student that I am and will always be, uh, the moment I get comfortable doing a task, I start to talk your ear off about anything. I could talk to you about anything for however long. I mean, especially you, Erie, (laughs) but, um, anybody basically. Uh, so we're planting some dahlias and we're in the groove and I'm chatting away, talking about my week and me making cheese and Kirsten, who is, she's pretty, I mean, she's pretty talkative too. And she has a, a, a wealth of her own knowledge. She says, well, do you know how the first cheese was made? And I did it. My history on cheese went back to, you know, like American homesteading practices and, what people did um recently i mean most of my cheese making history went from like the last 20 years right i looked into it but i that my hyperfixation on that point didn't reach far back history and so i asked i was like well where to come from and she relays a story to me 
that is very interesting. So the story she relays to me here is that soldiers had killed a calf that had been drinking milk, and it was pretty hot, and the rennet that was in the calf's stomach had turned to cheese on a hot day. Which to I then replied, so then they ate it, because gross. Gross. And we laughed about it and just kind of went on with our day, but it really stuck with me, right? Um, Because I was about to make more cheese, and like this idea, for some reason to me, this idea that they had killed a calf, taken it with them, and then split open its intestines and was like, oh, cheese, what is this? And like didn't know what it was. There had never been cheese before. And they were just comfy with it. It's like that same unsettling when you're like, what the guy that first found out what milk was, was he just like doing things he shouldn't have been doing? It was like that same vibe of like, this is gross and like kind of uncomfortable. Like who ate it? Like, right. And does it make sense that like, random British soldiers would be like, put it in your mouth. Like, yeah, that checks out. That tracks, yeah. That tracks for sure. But it did stick with me. So I was going to make cheese later in that week. And I had to look into it because I was really bothered. I don't know why. I just, I get like that with things where I just, I'm like, this is weird. And there's something about it that's just not right. And what I found was interesting in multiple ways. Do you want to take a guess at who was the first people to make cheese? Mm. Uh, was it someone whose culture was erased uh, partially or... <laughs> a little bit maybe, okay. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Great um, It actually is really kind of funny because it goes back to your taxidermy uh, episode. It was the Egyptians. The Egyptians. The Egyptians. They're always doing fun stuff. They're always doing fun stuff. Um, so... Egyptians actually had cheese making depicted in their tombs all the way back to 8,000 BC. What? Yeah. Um, the Egyptians had, it's thought, this is from what I could see in research, I, of course, with all things when it's 8,000 BC, it's all just somebody's thought, somebody's idea of trying to redo hieroglyphics and all those good things. But it's thought that Egyptians had discovered cheese because they would store liquids in leak-proof containers of animal stomach linings. Like a water bladder, like you'd see in like a fantasy movie, you know, mm-hmm. when they have that. That's what they did. I mean, that's a real thing. And um, when you make cheese, there is this enzyme called rennet, which is in the stomach of ruminants. So what we talked about before, that things that eat grass, right? Or things that are eating greenery. So you have your deers, your cattle. And you also have to get cheese up to 86 degrees before it will start to turn to a curd with the right bacteria. So the Egyptians, who lived in a pretty hot climate for, the, for most of the year, and I would say when the sun was out, they would store this milk in stomachs. And on hot days, it would make cheese, which is wild to me. <laughs> Because the idea that they were milking an animal and then putting that milk into a stomach of another animal and then it was gifting them cheese. Like a true life hack, but like a very dark one. (laughs) So we got that going for us. But to me that made more sense. And the idea of they knew this stomach was like clean 
and then they themselves put the ingredients into it and then was like, oh, this is cheese, I'll eat it. Versus that makes them just way finding it. Yeah, it makes okay. way more sense. Well, and not even just finding it, but just being even interested in eating it. Mm-hmm. Because if you just happen to kill a calf and then find something in its stomach, why would you eat? You don't know. It could have eaten anything. That could be a bunch of bird poop for all you. you know, how would you know? You know? So it's like, that makes more sense to me that it was like at least slightly intentional. Even if the first time it even happened was pure incident, it still would make more sense of why would they even put it in their mouth? Well, because they know that the only thing they put in there was milk. So mm-hmm. they know it would be like something to eat. Not that people didn't just eat things and die all the time back down yonder. I'm sure that is true. I'm, I, I, that I, and, and we happened. are grateful for them. Yep. So let's go back to the social study of it all. My middle-aged white Christian coworker believed that Christian soldiers had founded cheesemaking thousands of years after the first recorded cheesemaking process. So most of us know what happened, Egypt v. Christianity, right? I think that this is a very interesting story of the theme of the Victor Wright's history, right? Very true. Through centuries of time, this story has changed hands so much. It's woven through years of Christian women telling their children at dinner tables all throughout history about these brave Christian soldiers and their dead calf. And it's gone on for so long that it somehow landed in my lap, right in front of me, 1700 years after the tide turned for Christians in Egypt. And there you see the peak of my ultimate hyperfixation, the wide web of things changing hands from generation to generation and the stories that were told. So then of course that took me into a whole tailspin of the history of cheese. Because why wouldn't it? Now you're sitting here telling me these people found it, but actually these people found it. It's a whole thing. So after all of this, when did cheese become such a phenomenon in our society, right? Like when, what happened there? And you would tend to agree with me that we are Ohio-based life forms. I would agree. (laughs) And I do like knowing about our state. Like what the women of early Ohio were doing in their day-to-day. What was going on in our property a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. You know, was there a T-Rex maybe walking around here? Maybe. I hope so. I would like to think so. I mean, you're here and that's close enough. Hey, oh, thank you for that. And uh, all the way back in 1783... With our lush pastures and four seasons, Ohio was a cheesedom. They literally called it that, a cheesedom. Like kingdom, but cheese, a cheesedom. That's incredible. For 50 years, Ohio was called a cheesedom. Isn't that wonderful? Why isn't it still the cheesedom? Well, I can tell you why. Um, But I got to tell you some other stuff before I tell you why. We lost our cheesedom title. (laughs) I do have an answer for you, though. Hold on. I basically found out that the Great Lakes system took the New Englanders... Um, from New England and New York to Northwestern Ohio. Then it went to Wisconsin, right? The Great Lake system. I told my partner this and he said, he made immediately made a million jokes about like, oh, it must be the, the great cheese current, you know, like all these things. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. But what I also found and thought was very interesting was that the first cheese factory in our country 
and actually technically the first factory in the world, was uh, ran by women. Cheese making queens. And cheese making at that point in time was considered artistry. You know, we had already at that point had been the headquarters. Ohio, we had gotten so many Swiss from the the New York, New England area. We had gotten so many white people who had years of making cheese in their own countries, immigrating to a very young, not even really fully formed America yet. And for 50 plus years, cheese had become this huge industry. So cheese making was considered an art and these women were considered artisans. They were very respected, uh, which is nice. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because you don't find a lot of moments in history where it was women ran, where women were running things and and they were respected. They were respected for it. Very true. And we could do a whole story about how women built the USA. I think it's a very interesting, especially the West, like Mm -hmm. very interesting. But when it comes to cheese, it was very nice to know that I was amongst good company, if you will. And don't worry, do not worry. History is not always that nice. That company was, the factory was owned by a man, but he was a good guy who treated, he paid them well, very well for the time. I mean, extremely well. These these women were considered artists and they were paid like that. And I just thought it was nice and I wanted to include it. But my brain immediately goes to how much I love women. I mean, just, it's insane. How did they find the time? Any of them. Because you know it was Egyptian women, too, running kitchens. I mean, look at any time back in history. It's women that are doing most of the domestic work. So you're telling me Egyptians, the Swiss, Americans, thousands of years apart, most of them raising a growing country and growing families. How did they find the time? I mean, imagine what your day-to-day life looks like. You're probably the one milking the cows every morning. And also making the cheese. You're running a dairy. You're making the the product of the dairy. You're in a growing nation. You probably have like 85 kids. You probably have 85 children. <laughs> At least. <laughs> and here you are being respected and sought after to work for people because cheese is such a booming industry because who doesn't love cheese? And it just blew me away because these are just tenacious women throughout history. And me, their legacy is standing in my kitchen making cheese. How cool is that? It's just such, it's such a, a cool thing about life. I mean, I, we're sitting in a room recording this podcast where I have 25 new Dahlia tubers sitting on my desk waiting to be planted. And I also have cheese aging on my shelves. And both of these took years to cultivate and I am lucky enough to be living in a time where both of them are sitting me staring me in the face. All in the same place. All in the same place. And I just think that's wonderful and I think that we need to celebrate more just little things in life that you don't take the time to think about how they got to you and in your hands. And I'm grateful that you guys let me do that today. But I'm not gonna let you go yet because I'm me. So I also Googled other just like weird fun things that happened in 1783. Cause it's like, it's just such a, like, you know, a year. And um, (laughs) 
I found this article that I will have linked below. Um, it's uh, like wacky and weird things that happen through history. And this one specific specifically mentioned 1783. So let me read you this passage. It is the summer of 1783. The guns of war have fallen silent. Oh God. And, <laughs> and a private from the Continental Army is being treated in the bustling city of Philadelphia. Stripping off the soldierly rags to treat the putrefying wounds underneath, Dr. Barnabas Binney immediately made a shocking discovery. The young soldier named Robert Shirtlift was actually a woman named Deborah Sampson. A bit of a sleigh, if you ask me. Oh, that is a huge sleigh. Go off. I mean, a little, you know, a little Mulan moment. Which, this was made into an HBO show. Which also just threw me for a loop. I know this has nothing to do with cheese making, but the year 1783, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal in cheese. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. But you mean to tell me that was made into an HBO show? They made a series about a, a woman dressed as a man. And I looked into this. This is not a trans person. This was a woman wanting to fight for her country. Right. This is a Mulan situation. <laughs> but... This woman is dressed as a man and has his shirt lifted to expose wounds. And their name is Robert Shirtlift. <laughs> their name is Robert Shirtlift. I have an inquiry about the coincidence on that. Someone run the odds, please, and get back to me. <laughs> Still a sleigh, though, Samson. And as always, thank you for your service. Of course. We love that. See how easy it is for me to go into left field the moment I get comfy. So anyway, war is war. And cheese is cheese because of historically delicious stomach enzymes and how wonderful that is. Anyway, I made a sharp cheddar and a stainless steel Dutch press and the entire time I was just so grateful it was not a stomach. That's fair. Yeah. I'm grateful for the women that came before me. I'm grateful for their artistry and I'm grateful for technology. And advancements. Yeah, I <laughs> totally agree. I do have some questions for you. If yeah. you've... Uh... I'm ready to answer that. You, you might not have the answers. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm very curious. Okay. Question number one. So we were talking specifically about uh, plant-eating animals being the ones that produce the cheese, right? Mm -hmm. So is deer cheese a thing? I need to know. Um, so I've asked that question before because I'm, I'm like, does anyone, anything that has nipples? I yeah. even took it further. I said, is there breast milk cheese? And you bet your ass I'm there, sure is. there is. Yeah. yeah. There's some women out there revolutionizing that, I yeah. assume. There's like yeah. a whole cookbook of like breast milk breast cheeses milk cheese, yeah. and stuff. But I don't know. Deer is just so weird because when I think so, of deer, me being deaf, I assume a carcass on the side of the road, you know, not like. Oh, you're like, can I open up its stomach and yeah, there'll exactly. be cheese in there? Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, is someone like making deer cheese? I don't think it? so. I mean, I'm sure if we went to good old like junkie gyms or right. like some international markets uh that there would be something of that sort but i don't think that they produce enough for it to be like a mass export yeah okay that makes sense i'm sure that you could in theory milk a deer i'm sure that i'm sure i hate that do. i said that sentence <laughs> thank you for that i apologize thanks for that setup i really I appreciate have done you. that for you okay okay follow-up question we're talking about the egyptians getting their cheese what animals were they milking um so cheese? they had they had cows okay they had cows I don't they, know why i didn't think of a cow in that, that type of my yeah. brain doesn't think of cow in desert. well desert grass yeah. for sure i mean at that point a lot of i will say a good amount of the egyptian stuff did have stuff coming in from like where you're like the further out and like 
different type of agriculture, okay, but since I'm ignorant. you're looking at, no, you're good. you're looking at um, cows, but you're also looking at oxen. Okay. Because female oxen are cow, I yeah. mean, cattle. So yeah. you have kind of the same setup for sure. I'm sure there was some goats in there too. Okay. Final question: What type of cheese is fondue? Is it a is it a soft cheese? I would assume. But like, if you heat it up. You could heat up a hard cheese and then it becomes like liquidy, right? I believe that fondue is a mix of. I I would think at its base it's cheddar, like a traditional cheddar, but I would think that they probably have a bunch of different types. I would assume there's probably like a white cheddar or like a Swiss cheese in mm -hmm. there. That's a wonderful question. I just, when I think hard cheese versus soft cheese, I am yeah. thinking the texture. So then when the cheese becomes liquidy, such as fondue or a good old nacho cheese in a can, yeah. my brain's like, is it then soft or hard? How does that work? Well, so, I mean, like, uh, I when you go to that, I go to queso. Okay. Which queso is like a mix of a bunch of different cheeses traditionally. Like, if not, and I mean, I don't mean traditionally in like, in history, but I mean like traditionally, like if a chef's in, gonna make you. Right. Yeah, if a... If you're going to a restaurant eating a queso, it's like a bunch of different cheeses. Mm -hmm. But that's a wonderful question. Hold on. I'll find that out for you because now I want to know. And what's better than us all learning together? What cheese is fondue? All I can think of is Justin Bieber sitting, sitting by the fire while we're eating fondue. Have you heard that? Do you no, know what I'm talking about? No it doesn't. It's like the most random line in any song I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't know why my brain went to fondue, but... So yes, okay. I didn't want to say this and be wrong. Typically, you're looking at Fontina, Gruyere, and Gruyere, and Gouda, oh, which is what I was thinking because it was like it's so a lot of white cheeses. But I didn't want to say it be Gouda or Gruyere. So and is white cheese hard cheese or soft cheese? Does it are there? There's different types. It's okay, all about okay. what bacteria you culture them with. Okay, okay. So because you're gonna look like a, an extra white sharp cheddar is a hard cheese, and that's just a white cheddar but you also have mozzarella which is a soft cheese but also bone white as well so yeah so is that all your questions that's that's it i love that you chose to end on fondue i really appreciate that what can i say gotta love a, a good fondue moment so anyway you uh, decided to end this on fondue and i really appreciate that anytime all right well if that is all your questions i want to thank you guys so much for hanging out and listening to me talk about cheese i want to thank the women who come before us may we forever be their legacy and um thank you guys for spending time with us and thank you all for being here today and for being here in the future and stay out arcadia